You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Today, we're going to talk about Bitcoin. Okay, if you haven't heard of Bitcoin or thought about Bitcoin at this point, you got to get out of the cave soon because as you'll see in today's podcast, as you'll hear or see, depending on what medium you're using here, Bitcoin is going to become part of the future of money, right? It is it is going to find its place very soon. And Nick Badia is going to explain why. Now, I began, let me just start out, look back up a little bit. I began talking about cryptocurrency on this podcast back in 2017. That was the last bull run. A uh, number of you joined on this crypto journey back then uh, because of that. And uh, well, you're welcome, I guess, because you probably made a lot of money. Uh, but those there was also a lot of people who felt like they were going to stay on the sidelines. And, you know, for good reason. Cryptocurrency seemed like a big digital fad and maybe it would die out like the tulips of the past. Well, there was a deep frost that did kill many projects between then and now. But one thing is now very clear to me hopefully to you as well. Cryptocurrency, digital currency is here to stay. Now, learning about cryptocurrency is the hard part. It's challenging because in my humble opinion, it's actually more than one thing. So let me summarize how I see the cryptosphere today before we get to Nick Batia, okay? There's Bitcoin, which Nick will talk about, and it has established itself even at the level of governments, various governments around the world as a digital asset with intrinsic value, a type of digital gold, if you will. Then there are cryptocurrencies that are not Bitcoin, and these are known as alternative coins or altcoins. Now, the Bitcoin purists, many of them, and this is a culture onto its own, which I don't think is necessarily a good thing for Bitcoin and the Bitcoin culture, uh, because there's a lot of uh, crazy people in that space as well. But, you know, they call everything that's not Bitcoin a shit coin. So all altcoins, they say, are shit coins, and they will promise that they will all fade away and die with the fiat uh, world as well. Of course, I don't believe in that prophecy, right? I believe that each altcoin, each altcoin should be seen differently from Bitcoin, but they should be seen as a tech startup. Each altcoin is essentially a distributed ledger tech startup, right? Now, when you think about it in those terms, let's think back to the dot-com era where companies like Amazon, Google, and Apple became legends in the tech sector, right? This is back in the 90s for where we're going with uh, distributed ledger technology. There were also companies back then like pets.com, that went belly up in flames. In fact, most dot-coms went up in flames. And frankly, that's what I think was going to happen most definitely in the alt space in cryptocurrency. Most of these tokens will be losers. Most of them are terrible. They are meaningless. But there will be a handful of projects that will become household names the same way that Google and Apple are today. Or they're simply going to become part of the fabric of daily life. You know, they're going to be the stuff in the background like electricity. Today... You certainly see that some are clearly, you know, less risky than others. You could say that Ethereum as an altcoin is the leader. It's a pretty safe bet to be there in the future in that whole successful view. But it's also likely to have gains that are not as significant as some of the projects that 
we'll end up making it, but that we don't really know about right now. So Ethereum is really the only alternative coin that I would consider a blue chip stock. Now, others, again, will be more risky bets, but the gains could potentially dwarf those that will be seen by Ethereum investors in the future. Now, you could go down the line and make an argument about a number of decentralized protocols, you know, whether they're a potential long-term success or failure. You know, I look at them the same way I would look at startup companies and invest in them according to my asymmetric portfolio strategies, right? I mean, that's basically what it is. Now, let's get back to Bitcoin because that's really what this show is all about. It's totally different from the alt, right? Again, Bitcoin is not a tech company. Bitcoin's closest parallel in today's financial world is gold. And as Wall Street and various governments start to adopt Bitcoin, you can see it make its way into the future of money. And Nick Batia sees this economic history unfolding in real time. And he's written a book about it. And he's going to explain it to us right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Nick Batia. Nick is a financial researcher, a CFA charter holder, and adjunct professor of finance and business economics at the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business, where he teaches applied finance and uh, fixed income securities. Now, previously, Nick worked the U.S. Treasury's trading desk for a large institutional asset manager, extensive trading experience in money markets and interest rate futures. He is the author of a book called Layered Money, From Gold and Dollars to Bitcoin and Central Bank Digital Currencies. Nick has got a BA in social sciences from the University of Southern California, a master's in finance from IE Business School in Madrid, Spain, and he lives in Los Angeles. So, Nick, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for having me, Buck. I appreciate it. Yeah, so let's, I, mean, I want to kind of just jump into the book, if you would. Tell, tell us, first of all, what, you know, layered money from golden dollars to Bitcoin. I guess the question is, why did you write it, first of all? And what are you, what message fundamentally are you trying, you know, to educate people on? I wrote the book because I come from the asset management world and the traditional finance world. And somewhere along the way in 2016, I found Bitcoin in a very real way and became completely obsessed with it to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't uh, turn my attention away from it. And I saw the information asymmetry between the people who knew about Bitcoin understood it and owned it and my world, which was traditional finance and uh, people in the investment management industry. Yeah. And so I you know, started to bridge that gap by writing things about Bitcoin 2018. And uh, eventually I wanted to write my explainer for the world about Bitcoin, why it exists Uh, what the history of money is really, which is what you need to explain before understanding Bitcoin itself, and then project into the future what I think the world will look like from the monetary perspective in the next 10 years. How does Bitcoin fit into the natural progression of, you know, obviously we're, we're talking about gold and then fiat currencies. How does Bitcoin evolve from that? Because I think fundamentally, you know, people who are Bitcoin advocates and who go down that uh, rabbit hole, um, 
including me, probably not to the depth of you, uh, but, uh, but, you know, we, we all kind of believe that this is, you know, it's not something theoretical anymore. It's real and it's a natural progression, but how do you explain that to, to people who maybe don't understand it? From a historical perspective, we had commodity money dominate uh, for thousands of years and that, you know, you can think about the feathers and shells era, but then also gold and silver. These are commodities, tangible things. And we progressed away from commodity money to a balance sheet money, financial systems, issuing deposits, reserves, notes, all these instruments that are monetary instruments. They don't have intrinsic value. They have uh, a counterparty and a draw on some value in the future. And, um, Bitcoin is a new type of commodity money. So in the evolution, really, it's taking away some of the balance sheet components of monetary instruments and reintroducing a commodity component. And so, you know, for people that don't aren't familiar with Bitcoin, it is a virtual or a numerical commodity of sorts in which when you have your private key, this is simply a number and that number gives you property ownership of a fraction of the Bitcoin network, which has an algorithm that is limited to 21 million total coins, which is uh, subdivisible by 100 million. Uh, so you have, you have these finite units and people have viewed that to, to be a commodity. And so uh, to answer your question, it's really a, an evolution back toward commodity money. And then we'll, I think we will see a balance sheet money built on top of Bitcoin. So I guess the question is, you know, why, the way you view it, why, why do we need Bitcoin? I mean, why don't we just go back to gold then? I mean, because ultimately what you're talking about is, you know, money with intrinsic value and people who are, you know, gold bugs will make the same argument, right? Yes. And I studied gold and actually owned gold before I got into Bitcoin and really understood what it was. So I do agree with that perspective. Now, you know, why do we really need Bitcoin? We, we already have gold, but once you see Bitcoin and its advantages over gold, it's almost like gold is obsolete now. And I, and I'm, I'm not one of those people that think gold is going to go away or lose all value rapidly in the face of Bitcoin. However, in the digital age, Bitcoin has a lot of the properties that gold does in its scarcity, its difficulty to create, um, in its in its relatively low flow in you know relation to its stock, the stock to flow model that several people have talked about, written about uh, before, and so this the digital nature of it and the mathematical nature of it as well, in which you can use software and test the purity of your Bitcoin instantly. Anybody can do that around the world. And you think about the, the, the gold bars with tungsten inside of them, that it's actually very difficult to test gold uh, for the average person. And, um, and you know, you yeah. think about physical coins and, and, yep. and, and, and all these restrictions that, that come with this physical form of money. And Bitcoin really makes a, a lot of it uh, just go away. All, all those problems go away. So effectively you're talking about, okay, you have a commodity, but now it has qualities that 
you know, first of all, like you said, you can't, you know, it's hard to fake a Bitcoin. You can't really fake a Bitcoin. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it has uh, the security elements. Uh, obviously, it's a lot more mobile than gold. It's, you know, not really theoretically, you know, confiscatable, right? So then how do you view it, though, in, in the sense that, you know, I think, I think one of the things that I've been sort of, I've ha- you know, I've had these discussions with Bitcoin people before, you know, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists, as we talk about, it seems like they often share this view, and I'm not saying that you do in any sort of way, but have this view of Bitcoin arising through the ashes of a zombie apocalypse, right? Where, you know, everything burns down and Bitcoin is there to save the day. And that that seems to me like, you know, something that the Bitcoin maximalists often seem to have this dystopic view of 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 where Bitcoin comes in. My argument on that end has has been and who knows what the reality is. But if you look at actually what's happening with Bitcoin, there is almost sort of an integration with, um, you know, with modern uh, with the modern financial markets. And so much to the chagrin of people who would think of Bitcoin as a, you know, a completely independent asset, right? An asset that has no controls or, or you know, something out of the monetary system. To me, when I look at what's actually happening is it's becoming adopted uh, more and more into mainstream uh, financial markets. And I'm curious about how, what your perspective on, on this is and, you know, how does that change the Bitcoin thesis? Your, your description is very accurate. I really like that because we are seeing a full integration of Bitcoin into the current system in addition to the adoption of Bitcoin by young people around the world without access to that traditional system. So you're seeing both happen in parallel. And I don't believe in, uh, you know, some collapse of the financial system and Bitcoin rising up. It, it really is this slow integration and transition away. And simply, if you think about like a 12 year old person uh, that downloads a Bitcoin wallet for the first time before they have a bank account, yep. that is happening times millions around the planet and will continue to as, you know, all the, you know, kids start to become aware of money and what that means a lot, you know, millions and and then potentially billions of people will have a Bitcoin wallet before a bank account. And some might never have a bank account uh, at all, but the people that already have bank accounts like you and I, we are long Bitcoin. We have it uh, either inside or outside of the financial system. And hopefully, once you understand Bitcoin more and more, you're able to keep some or all of that outside of the financial system. If your goal is to, you know, preserve your property and have it, uh, you know, removed of counterparty risk away from, you know, because if you have your Bitcoin on an exchange, for example, you still have full counterparty risk to that exchange. You could lose your Bitcoin tomorrow, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not yours if you don't if you don't have it, but there are insurance mechanisms and established institutions and now regulatory framework that make all of these counterparties somewhat legitimate in the eyes of, you know, everybody that uses the traditional financial system. So you have both happening together. 
I guess the question is, you know, you can see sort of the 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 ghost of Satoshi looking at this and and frowning, right? Like this is not the way Bitcoin was meant to be. Is that fair? Uh, so that's where I would disagree. I think yeah. that if you look at Bitcoin's performance relative to other assets and price increases in stocks, for example, in real estate, you look at Bitcoin relative to those other assets, it's still telling you a story that keeping things denominated still within the traditional dollar system is a losing proposition over the long term. That's the story that Bitcoin's price is telling us. And so I think that story is quite loud and it is starting to be heard. And so I don't think that Satoshi's uh, basically goal of providing this parallel outside separate financial system from the dollar, I don't think that that's being lost because people are denominating their selves, their businesses, Mm -hmm. uh, their mentalities in Bitcoin. And those people are all around the world. And that network is increasingly strong. And I think that was Satoshi's vision, one of them. Along the lines of, you know, sort of the the adoption into mainstream financial markets, you could say that Bitcoin is starting to obviously attract, it has attracted the interest of, of governments. It's attracted the interest, particularly of the IRS. How does any of that affect what's going on with Bitcoin? Is that just, a, again, a natural evolution? Now the IRS sees it as a real commodity. And, um, you know, this is... Uh, you know, this is just the way it is. Now you have to look at it like any other type of, you know, asset that you own. It's just that now it's being recognized, not as money, uh, fake stuff, but real stuff, uh, real commodities. I mean, do you see any influence from governments and, you know, these various things like the IRS that actually are going to change the trajectory of Bitcoin? And that's the key. No, I don't think there's anything governments can do that can change the trajectory of Bitcoin. But there are a lot of positives to take out of what's happening in the United States. For example, the IRS has treated Bitcoin as property for seven years now. Mm -hmm. And if you uh, sell Bitcoin for a gain, you have a capital gain that you have to pay tax on. And the IRS does try to enforce that. Now, that gives Bitcoin a lot of legitimacy, let's just say, in the United States. People know that the IRS isn't trying to they don't have a policy of seizure of Bitcoin or, you know, that it's an illicit activity. They regard it as virtual property and you have to pay tax on it if you, if you make a gain. Okay. But also there are efforts to within states and then at the federal government level as well, try to get Bitcoin de minimis transactions exempt from this capital gain so Mm -hmm. that it can be used as currency in the day in day to day transactions. And that would be enormous for Bitcoin because then it, it, it gives it, 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 it's already achieved this level of price and market value with being taxed as a capital gain in the United States. And if you remove an additional tax burden from, if you remove a tax burden from Bitcoin and make it um, exchangeable without this capital gains declaration, every single time you buy coffee with it, 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 it can accelerate the Bitcoin adoption in the United States. And the U.S. does set an example for the rest of the world. That's one side of the story. The other is that Bitcoin, because it's digital, will flock to wherever it's allowed to be transacted and owned 
in a, in a, in a legal way. So you have Singapore, Switzerland having very progressive Bitcoin legislation being passed. And so money will flee toward those countries if the United States doesn't get on board. And so I'm extremely optimistic about the U.S. Uh, regulate, regulatory framework toward Bitcoin being leading, cutting edge. And I hope to be involved with some of that. I'm, you know, writing policy uh, statements and, and things of that nature to try to influence this in the correct direction so we can use Bitcoin. It doesn't have an unnecessary tax burden and we can set an example and not lose business to the rest of the world. When it comes to the actual, you know, you, you talked a little bit about this, this um, idea of Bitcoin being buying coffee with Bitcoin and stuff like that. And obviously when you look at sort of the, uh, it's, uh, it's a digital currency, but it's still, it's not an easy transaction to do uh, in a few bucks. Are you seeing, so, you know, a few months ago, a guy I know named Samson Mao on the show, uh, Samson's uh, chief strategy officer with uh, Blockstream, as, as you probably know. And, um, you know, he envisions a world ultimately that to me really parallels the gold standard, the American dollar almost, right? Uh, the, the dollar pegged to gold. Like he, he envisions a second layer in which, you know, uh, these transactions can occur very quickly vis-a-vis, say, lightning networks and, and that kind of thing uh, that are then later settled in Bitcoin. Is that kind of what you the what you envision? So it is what I envisioned, but now I can tell you from my own perspective, I've been doing business in Bitcoin for my book for a year, and it's all lightning all the time. And it moves instantly. And um, we, we, as in people that are using Bitcoin for commerce, are using Lightning because we can settle whenever we want on our own. But in the interim, we use these smart contracts to exchange instantly, exchange Bitcoin with each other instantly. And we know that it's real. Like you say, you, you can't fake Bitcoin. And so if I'm using a Lightning Network wallet that I trust, that I vetted, I know that once that transaction comes to me and it instantly hits my wallet, that that Bitcoin is mine no matter when I choose to settle it to whatever keys I decide to send it to eventually. And so uh, 90% of my transactions, like my day-to-day book transactions that I do in Bitcoin are in Lightning now. And so it... It's amazing how fast it happened. The only people that don't use Lightning now either uh, have some node difficulty issue, uh, you know, uh, issue where they couldn't connect to their node at home, or um, you know, to be honest, they are much older and have uh, Bitcoin only in Coinbase and uh, you know are are using it like that, and so. Um, it, I, I'm astounded at the lightning adoption. And I know this is just a, a very small sample set. We're talking about probably less than a hundred books that I've sold in Bitcoin this year. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, but it's across the world. It's on every continent. And um, I've done other transactions in lightning as well uh, for different business reasons. And so it's really amazing to see. It's actually good to know because I, again, a, a few weeks ago, I was in Dallas for a meetup and, I had dinner with some friends included in there with some a guy I didn't know who was apparently number 19 
in Ethereum uh, as an investor. So he was very early adopter and he had plenty of negative stuff to say about lightning and <laughs> everything related to it. But but it's good to hear it's good to hear that functionally that it's working quite well because his his take on it was very negative, which I was surprised about after speaking with Sam, Samson as well. So um, one, um, you know, one question that comes up frequently, especially for people who are new to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, right, is how do you view Bitcoin in the context of of the rest of the cryptocurrency ecosystem and I'm, I'm giving you my perspective because sometimes it's helpful for people to understand my explanations and i'm just curious what you your take is i see bitcoin as different fundamentally not not and i'm not saying it's uh, better in one way or another but simply different and that bitcoin is i think becoming increasingly accepted across the world as you talked about as a commodity as a true source of a value of it has intrinsic value and all those features. When I look at everything else, I kind of look at everything else as a tech company, right? And so it's like comparing apples to oranges, right? Bitcoin is gold in this, you know, different world. And then investing in Solana or whatever is investing in, you know, trying to find the next Google, trying to find the next Facebook I mean, not, you know, you know what I mean? Essentially the next tech platform or Cisco might be a better, <laughs> better example. What do you think of, of that analogy? I've actually used it. Okay. It's, you have. It's, oh, good. Yeah. It's the exact analogy that I use. So Bitcoin is gold and everything else is a tech company. It's a startup. Yeah. And, uh, it, it doesn't mean that they won't have value. They obviously do look at the market. I'm, all, I'm a firm believer in price is truth. So the price is telling us that all these things have value. It's also telling us that gold dwarf, I mean, sorry, gold, Bitcoin dwarfs everything else in terms of market value. And then we can even start to, you know, separate empirically uh, what are, you know, short-lived fads versus maybe the, the core competitors to Bitcoin. But even even you know in those core competitors, there are a lot of company-like characteristics about them, um, and very few commodity-like uh, characteristics about them. So, price is truth. Look at the price of Bitcoin in, in terms of market cap relative to the rest of these things, and until that is challenged in any material way, and that's why people. Uh, do talk a lot about Ethereum is because on a relative basis, um, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure right at this moment, but it's about one third, mm -hmm. one quarter to one third the size of Bitcoin, Ethereum is. Mm -hmm. And that's enough to warrant it, you know, on the commodity level. If that if people want to have that discussion, Ethereum is not something that I research uh, entirely too much, but Bitcoin has the commodity components to it. Every, it's the burden of proof is on everything else to prove that they are a commodity. And until that moment, they are a startup. And I think the SEC will play some role in that discovery process where they've come out very boldly and called Bitcoin not a security many years ago, the SEC has. so, And they've called other things securities that are in the cryptocurrency landscape. So I'm interested to see the SEC rule 
on a lot of these other things because they will be doing the due diligence and things like that. And I think we'll get some information discovery out of that as well in terms of what central points of control there are within certain coins. And if there are central points of control, then it will, it will not pass that test that the SEC uses to determine whether or not something is a security. I believe it traces back to some Orange Grove case in the 40s uh, where they, they, that's how they use uh, you know, this test to determine. Yeah, the Orange Grove test, huh? That's right. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about China, China's influence on, on Bitcoin, what's going on. You kind of alluded to it before. But I'm just curious if you can kind of give us a take. I mean, obviously, you know, China had some some various bans uh, on, um, you know, mining, uh, which has actually been a, a potentially really big opportunity for the rest of the world, um, especially in the U.S. here. There's also, conversely, you know, seems to be interest in China in digital currencies, but maybe more like a digital yuan and adoption. But I'm curious what your take is, because China has played such a major role in Bitcoin through history uh, of Bitcoin and and what's going on there that you think is of significance to the ecosystem. There are so many things going on in China uh, that are worth talking about. First of all, their ban of mining, you know, probably a huge geopolitical blunder, but I don't necessarily think that it had everything to do with Bitcoin and more to do with their energy grid and their desire to put on a clean energy face for the world. Um, So I think that that might be part of it, but there are also so many and and millions of people in China, part of the Chinese communist party itself that have mined Bitcoin and own Bitcoin. Uh, We know this because obviously miners uh, were in Bitcoin, were in China for many, many years and earned all those block rewards. So we know that they own it. And we also know that, the Chinese uh, yuan is not a convertible currency and it was used to purchase Bitcoin in Hong Kong and move uh, money out of China over the last several years. We've, we saw the correlation between the two at times when that activity can, you know, spikes. So we know Chinese people own Bitcoin. We know there's Bitcoin in China. So for us to think that they're just going to ban it or it's not going to, they're not going to own it anymore is a little naive, but they're, Banning mining activity is definitely going to be beneficial to the United States. We've already seen Texas be a huge beneficiary of that. And then separately on the Chinese central bank digital currency, that's a full green light that they're going to launch that. Uh, it's already being tested, but they're going to launch it at the Winter Olympics next year. And um, I think that they're hoping to internationalize the currency even more, use it as a geopolitical tool, as a surveillance tool, and all these types of political motives to that digital currency. So giving Bitcoin a bad name in in China to the Chinese people might make them more excited about this new digital yuan that the government is issuing. So, you know, that might be a possibility. And then the last thing I'll say is that the Chinese Communist Party has a, a social sciences think tank that translated and published my book, Layered Money, in the country and got a prominent professor to write the foreword. And they've been doing, you know, seminars to promote the book. And, uh, you know, the, the, the foreword says that, you know, while we do not agree necessarily that Bitcoin is going to be the basis for the financial system, this layered framework is an important one 
and important to explain Bitcoin and why it exists. So it's not black and white in China, Buck. That's what I'm trying to say yeah. here. Yeah, there's people that are for Bitcoin against Bitcoin, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. And then, and then there's what's actually happening in China, which is who knows, right? <laughs> right. They can say whatever they want, but we never really know what's happening in China. You brought up, you know, the central bank distributed coins, and I'm curious, you know, first of all, on China, on the China side, is that on an Ethereum platform, or is that an Ethereum based? No, it's a, it's a fully proprietary system uh-huh. that they have uh, that the PBOC is is piloting. So it's not a cryptocurrency in any way. It's just a digital token issued by a bank. It doesn't have so, any blockchain to use the, you know, well, to so use then that it's term. Just a yeah, database. It doesn't have any blockchain component right. to it. Okay, yeah. got it, got it. So... I don't really understand why you would what the use of that would be then, but it's it's political, right? Yeah. You, you you know, paper money leaves things out of your control if you're a government. Yeah, digital money gives you control. And if we think, if I you know, just to interrupt, is to step forward into the the Fed issuing it. It's going to be political. It's going to be so they can issue UBI, that you know, direct payments to people instead yep. of doing QE. That's what a CBDC will be used for. It's all political. Mm-hmm. What do you know or think about a Fed coin uh, production in the U.S.? Is that something that you believe is going to happen? Do you know anything about it right now? It's definitely going to happen. They're, they're years away. Um, the Fed has published several papers now, and they've officially, the Boston Fed and MIT are officially working on Fed coin already. Uh, that's public information. So we know it's going to happen. It'll take them maybe many years, right? It might take them another five years. I don't know, maybe before, but I, th- I think in less than five years, we'll have a Fed coin at least introduced. What will it resemble? Will it resemble cash? Meaning will it replace paper money in the United States, the Federal Reserve note, or will it be only a banking instrument that the Fed and banks use, like they use reserves, reserve balances, and they do QE. Will it modernize the internal financial infrastructure? I think it's going to do all of it. I do think that commercial banking is, as a as a business model, is somewhat in jeopardy all around the world. I'll just hop over to Europe just to give you, because they're a little bit further along than the Fed is. The ECB has put out some FAQs on the digital euro. One of them explains how they will limit the amount of digital euro a person can own. And above that, we'll start to implement negative charges, meaning a negative interest rate on balances. And they specifically say, this is to protect the commercial banking deposit industry because, you know, let's, you know, why would you own uh, Deutsche Bank deposits or Barclays deposits when you can just own digital euro in your wallet, you won't need commercial deposit banking anymore. So the CBDC threatens commercial banking in a very real way. The Fed and the ECB both understand this. So they have to be careful in how they do it. China has basically said we might be replacing commercial banking altogether in our country with the digital renminbi and it is what it is. So that it's an important example so, to, to look at. So I'm curious though, like on that front, if you look at, you know, um, what you just said and your, your background in, in, in financial markets, 
you know, if digital currencies are, you know, an existential threat to the banks, what do they do in response? I mean, I mean, because listen, the Fed at the end of the day, obviously is, you know, it's a cartel of banks, right? It's not, you know, it's not a a government thing. So you're talking about really an existential threat to the Fed vis-a-vis these, you know, connection with the banks. So how does that, you know, I'm not, you know, obviously you can't predict the future, but how do you look at that threat and, you know, what a rational, you know, decision-making process might look like on the commercial business and Fed side? Yeah, so in the game theory, when I game theory it, I see Congress taking more power away from the bank side of the Fed and making it more political. So Congress saying FedCoin is ours. Yeah, We're going to issue fed coins to the people not the fed so the government taking control back of fed coin and that banks issue stable coins which jpm is already doing they have jpm coin they will introduce stable coins to compete with fed coin so that in the dollar spectrum people will still put their money at banks by attracting you know more you know attractive interest rates on stable coins versus fed coin and have that arbitrage uh, play out in the free market and uh, Bitcoin stands alone as something separate outside of the system, a neutral currency, a non-balance sheet cover currency that people use, you know, for that component of it all to keep money not in the dollar in any way. Fascinating stuff, Nick. And uh, I could just keep going on and on, but we have to probably knock it out at some point. Uh, the book again is Layered Money. From gold and dollars to Bitcoin and uh, central bank digital currencies. It's Nick Batya. Nick, can you get this anywhere pretty much? Amazon, blah, 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 the usual. Absolutely. It's on Audible as well. I know a lot of uh, a lot of people love the audiobook, so it's um, it's done very well as well. And you, uh, you guys can find me at layeredmoney.com as well. And uh, I'm on Twitter at time value of BTC. Fantastic. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me, Buck. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Nick is, uh, I think he's a very, very good person to serve as the translator for the regular world and the digital world. He's a, he's a very, very good communicator on that end. And um, it also sounds like he agrees with me on a lot of this stuff, which makes me think he's smart, too. Of course, that's the way everybody is, right? If you agree with me, you must be smart. But anyway, make sure to check out that book. I think it is a definitely one that you should probably get your hands on, particularly if you've really not grasped the significance of this whole Bitcoin thing. And do that and make sure also that if you haven't, give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this show. Uh, it's definitely helpful for us and for me to continue to get great guests like Nick and others, you know, to improve in our rankings on the various platforms. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.